Whoops, we made a mistake. In the Anne Bonny story that you're going to hear today, we meant to say 1781, but we said 1881. But you knew that. Hey everybody, welcome to The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan. I'm the creator and producer of the show. This episode is... Uh, something I've been looking forward to very much. It's all about boats. You're going to learn a new, actually very old way to say left and right. We'll give you the reason behind that. You're going to hear a story from Victoria Rybel about Anne Bonny, one of the most famous pirates who happened to be a woman. You're also going to have our uh, always popular quiz time. I look forward to that myself. And after that, Victoria's going to tell you a story that I wrote about a man named Stephen Long and a boat that he took up the Missouri River that looked wildly like a dragon. Um, After that, we've got the Tamerlane Trio performing an original song about what else? Boats. Port and starboard. These are two words you may or may not know. It probably depends on how much time you've spent on a boat. If you do know how to find the starboard and port sides of a boat, that's great. Nice work. But have you ever wondered exactly why sailors use these words and not, oh, I don't know, right and left? Port and starboard are nautical terms. They are references that all sailors use and understand for direction on a boat. Now, the first thing we need to know is that the front of a boat is called the bow and the rear is called the stern. Picture yourself on a boat in the wide open waters of the Pacific, facing the bow, the front of the boat. Maybe it's raining, and you're trying to keep your balance in the midst of some very tall waves. Someone calls out that a whale has been spotted off the starboard side. You scramble to which side of the boat to get a look at the enormous creature. If you want to see that giant swimming mammal, you go to the right side of the boat. We call that the starboard side. On the other hand, the left side is known as the port side. Why is that? Well, like most things, it goes back a long way. In this case, it goes back to a time before boats had a rudder. If you don't know what a rudder is, it's a hinged shaped board of wood or metal that extends into the water at the center line of the ship, usually beneath the stern, the rear of the boat. It's how the boat is steered. A boat like a Viking longship didn't have a rudder. Without a rudder, it's really hard to control the direction, especially on a big ship. So it would be one Viking's job, and we'll call him Olaf the Oarboarder, to use a steering oar. Now, Olaf positioned himself at the stern, the rear, and held the blade of his steering oar into the water to help keep the boat on path while the wind filled the sails, or while his Viking oarsmen buddies rowed their oars and moved the boat forward. Eventually, Olaf and his sort rigged the oarboard to be more effective and more mechanical, but it still hung off the side of the rear in some form or fashion. Now, because most of the people steering boats were right-handed, they usually set their steering oar up on the right side of the stern it became commonly accepted that the boat was steered from the right side. Now, in Old English, the word for this was steerboard 
or steering side. You can see how this would change into the word starboard over time. Not long after, the opposite side, the left side, would be called the laudaboard. Laud is an old English version of the modern word load. Because the right side is where the steering oar is set up, you wouldn't want to dock it at port to unload your cargo on that side. You might damage the steering oar. So you would unload your cargo from the laudaboard side, which translates to load side. But a problem began to occur as language changed. People often get lazy with their speech, and Old and Middle English sailors were no different. Laudaboard began to be referred to as larboard. So now you had starboard and larboard. And those sound awfully similar. You think sailors had some confusion in the midst of crashing waves or sea battles or whaling expeditions as to what their fellow sailors were actually saying? Well, it was a problem. So in the 1800s, the British Royal Navy officially changed the term for the left side of the boat to port. It still makes sense with the old Viking ship scenario. The steering side, starboard, was on the right. The unloading side, or the side you take to port, was on the left. Now, there are a couple of handy tricks to keep these straight if you're having a problem remembering which is right and which is left. The one I used as a kid might not be the most efficient, but it goes like this. Starboard has two R's in it when you spell it. Port only has one. So starboard is right, since right starts with R and there's the two R's. Port is left. Perhaps an easier one, which I was never smart enough to figure out, is that port and left both have four letters. So they match, leaving starboard and right to be partners. If you're in the car now or later, we recommend spending a bit of time giving directions with these words. You never know when they might come in handy. And now, the golden age of piracy! You know, when the pirates were in their predatory prime and prowling the seas for plunder with a cozair calling out to the crew from up in the crow's nest to ready the cannon, there's cargo to capture! Would you believe there were lady pirates on some of those ships? The first time Anne Bonny sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, she probably didn't realize just how important the sea would be in her life. She was a teenager when her family left Ireland and crossed the ocean to Charleston, South Carolina. Once there, she quickly earned a reputation as a fiery young lady who was prone to anger and fits of violence, but one who was also very smart. There was a story that she once sent a boy to the hospital for making unwanted romantic advances, and it is widely accepted that after her mother died without so much as a blink, she managed the many affairs of the plantation for her father, a difficult job for a person of any age. But around the time of the age of 18, she married a man named John. This sailor John wanted to inherit Anne's father's plantation, but her dad thought she could do better than this ne'er-do-well. She disagreed. So instead, Anne and John were asked, not so kindly, to leave. They sailed to the Caribbean. And as it turns out, her dad was right. 
By most accounts, John Bonney was a not-so-great pirate, so when a new governor came to the Bahamas, he became an informant, snitching on the pirates that prowled the waters nearby. It did not take long before she grew tired of Sailor John's choices, career, and lack of prospects. It seemed like she was itching for some adventure, too, and she had fallen in love with a pirate named Calico Jack. Jack was not currently pirating. The king had offered a pardon to all who turned themselves in, so he took the offer and tried to find honest work while, but like his new love Anne, he was soon itching for adventure. You can't keep a pirate on shore for long. One night, Anne, Bonnie, and Calico Jack found themselves in Nassau Harbor. It's hard to say if they planned their next move in advance or if the idea came to them in a bolt of inspiration, like the white light from the moon that was shining down from above. Either way, under the cover of darkness, they stole a sloop. A sloop is a type of sailing ship, which is usually smaller and faster than cargo ships, which makes it great for pirating. Their newly stolen ship was known as the William. They gathered a crew and took to the seas for plunder. If they came across a ship they felt they could overpower, they would do so. Jack and Anne's crew took any money and valuable cargo on board. They took sailors they thought would be helpful to their own crew. Sailors with medical knowledge were quite valuable. You can imagine why. And sometimes they even took the ships themselves. On board the William, Anne dressed as herself a woman pirate who commanded the respect of the men of the crew. But it was common for Anne to dress more like a man when she was part of the boarding party, which she regularly was thanks to her bravery and great skills when it came to fighting. The boarding party would go to work after the William had caught up to its intended target. They would throw their ropes or chains with great hooks on the end to catch and pull the ships closer together. They'd board with swords and pistols. Heavy axes would be used to cut all the ship's rigging lines so the sails would collapse, leaving the boat without any means to get away. Cannon fire might even be used to bring down the masts. It was quick, mean, and messy. Boarding pirates hoped to intimidate the sailors into surrender, but if a fight was necessary, Anne and the other boarders were quite ready and quite good at it. So for some time, this was the life at sea for Anne, sailing with Jack and his crew. She was as fierce of a pirate as there ever was. Of course, you know, pirates usually flew flags of different designs, often with ominous pictures. It was kind of like a, a calling card, but also another way to frighten a victim. While Calico Jack flew the skull and crossbones, the now famous Jolly Roger we think of today as the most common pirate flag, it was that very flag Anne sailed under. But you might be surprised to learn that she wasn't the only woman pirate. No, she wasn't even the only woman to sail under Calico Jack's flag. At some point, Anne struck up a relationship with a young man on the crew. Most stories say that this sailor had joined the crew from another ship they had seized. Anne was quite surprised to find out one fateful day that this young man wasn't a man at all, but a woman named Mary Reed. As friends, they continued to both fight with great bravery, oftentimes more so than the men. The tale of the pirates aboard the William ends near Jamaica. A man named Barnett had been hired to bring them to justice when he spotted the boat at sea. 
He was able to surprise the crew of the William, just as Calico Jack's crew had done to other ships so many times before. The men, unprepared for a raid and celebrating a previous victory, didn't even put up a fight. They hid in the cabin. Mary Reed and Anne Bonny, disgusted with their cowardice, stood on deck and defended their ship. It would not be long because the two women, Jack and the crew, were taken to a prison and put to trial. It was decided the crew should be hanged for their crimes, and that's precisely what happened to Calico Jack. Mary and Anne both happened to be pregnant, and as was the legal custom, they were granted a stay of execution after they had pled their bellies. Unfortunately, Mary, a while after giving birth, would meet her end in that prison. Anne, however, disappears from history. There is no record of her hanging or death of any sort from that prison or any other. Many people believe that her father found out where she was and was able to strike a deal to quietly buy her freedom. It is said that she immediately returned to America to lead a less adventuresome life. Some claim that she married a man from Virginia, had eight more children, and lived into her 80s. In this story, she died in 1882, exactly one year after the Revolutionary War ended in Yorktown, Virginia. The body believed to be Anne Bonny is buried just a few miles from where this momentous event occurred. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Well, here we are at quiz time again. Because ships traveled to ports all around the world, they would often carry diseases, including the bubonic plague. So it became common for ships to be forced to wait a period of time in isolation, anchored off port, to make sure any diseases had run their course. A word we use today for isolating a sick person comes from this practice. Do you know what that word is? The Italian word quaranta means 40. During the bubonic plague epidemic, often called the Black Death, ships were forced to wait for 40 days offshore before being allowed to unload or come ashore. This helped verify that they wouldn't bring any disease on land. This was called a quarantine, which is a term we use today to prevent people with communicable diseases from passing them on. Question number two. In 1872, a ship named the Mary Celeste left New York Harbor bound for Italy. Do you know what was unusual about it the next time it was seen? Still a mystery to this day, the Mary Celeste was found drifting not far from the Azor Islands. There was absolutely no one inside. All of the food was left on board and nearly everything was left in place with no clue as to where the crew had gone. Since then, people have speculated everything from underwater earthquakes to giant squids or aliens 
to be the cause of this famous ghost ship. Question number three. Benjamin Franklin traveled across the Atlantic Ocean many times. In fact, he is credited with mapping the Gulf Stream for the first time. Now, the Gulf Stream is a powerful current of warm water that moves within part of the greater Atlantic Ocean. But that wasn't his only water-related discovery or invention. Do you know what an 11-year-old Benjamin Franklin invented that you might take to the pool in the summertime? All of his life, Ben Franklin loved swimming, and he was quite good at it as a young man. Even before entering his teenage years, wishing to be more efficient, he invented swim fins. Though you may wear your rubber fins on your feet, bins were designed to be worn on the hands. For his contributions and enthusiasm for swimming, at a time before it was terribly common, he has since been recognized by the International Swimming Hall of Fame. Stephen Long was smart and brave, and those are two important qualities required for the job he was about to undertake. But one other quality the government probably didn't count on was that he had a creative imagination, and that might have been his greatest gift of all. When Stephen was about 15, the explorers of the Lewis and Clark expedition headed out west to explore the land Thomas Jefferson bought from Napoleon of France, the Louisiana Purchase, as it was known. It was a staggering journey and something young Stephen certainly heard about, but if you would have told him he would be a part of a similar mission a few years later, he probably wouldn't have believed you. Stephen's world was very different from that of the men of the Lewis and Clark expedition. New inventions, knowledge, and developments were changing people's way of life. One of the most amazing inventions was the paddle wheel steamboat, the kind with the big red wheel that goes around and around. Unlike other boats on American rivers, it could easily travel against the current and do so while carrying loads of people and cargo. Why, its speed, a blistering five miles per hour, was amazing to the first people who saw them in the eastern states. Still, the states further west, like Indiana and Kentucky, would not see a steamboat for a while. When the first one finally came down the Ohio River to Louisville, Kentucky, people were quite literally terrified. You see, it was 1811, and for weeks beforehand, a large comet had been clearly visible streaking across the sky. When this steamboat arrived in the middle of the night, the loud, horrible racket its engines made carried for miles. The fires burning inside the engine room gave off a bright light townspeople could see from the center of town, and the belching smoke filled the air in a way people had never seen before. Rather than investigate what was causing this ruckus, many people were certain that this was the same comet from the sky crashing down to Earth right by their homes. When they woke up safe and sound the next day, they were probably a bit embarrassed by their overreactions, because what they found upon investigating the unfamiliar noisemaker was not a comet, but a new marvel of technology. Stephen was to be part of that steamboat history. The same Missouri River that Lewis and Clark struggled to conquer for months, the longest river in the United States, was to be explored by a squad of steamboats, six in all. It was called the Yellowstone Expedition, 
and they would be the first steamboats west of the Mississippi River. Most of the boats were full of soldiers and part of a military effort to boost fortifications in the area. Long, however, was to assemble a team of scientists, zoologists, and artists to study and document the unfamiliar landforms, plants, and animals of the area, much as Lewis and Clark had done. Stephen had been on rivers before, so he knew the challenges. Tight turns would be hard for large boats, especially side-wheel steamboats, which are boats made so that the big red wheels that go around and around, those are protruding from both sides of the hull, near the middle of the boat. He also knew shallow water would be a problem, and the potential of attacks from Native Americans was very real. Stephen didn't like the odds of success for the typical steamboats of the time, so he designed his own highly experimental craft he called the Western Engineer. No one has seen anything like it since. Firstly, it was relatively small and built in such a way that the hull only sat about 19 inches underwater. This would, hopefully, allow it to miss the shallow rocky bottoms other ships might hit. Long also decided to move the big red wheel that goes around and around to the back of the boat, making it one of, if not the first, stern wheelers in America. But the way it looked, oh, my friends, that's where it was really special. Stephen Long knew that the boat would need to look impressive in order to intimidate anyone they would encounter on the way. So the pilot house was reinforced to make it nearly bulletproof. Then the hull of the boat was painted with a scaly green pattern, almost like snakeskin. And from the bow protruded the head of an enormous serpent. Its eyes were bulging, its mouth wide open as if in mid-scream. A mouth full of sharp teeth surrounded a fire-red tongue. It was a fierce dragon serpent, and it was supposed to look terrifying. But that's not all. Anyone who's seen a steamboat chugging down a river knows that the smokestacks produce thick clouds of swirling smoke and steam. Well, to add to the spectacle, the smoke exhaust from the Western engineer's engines was piped not out of a smokestack, but to the front of the boat, so it escaped from the wide-open mouth of that fierce serpent. To an unfamiliar eye, it would be easy to imagine this stern-wheel ship as a giant dragon kicking its tail and breathing fire as it struggled up the river with a group of soldiers riding on its back. And that's exactly how it appeared. When it arrived in St. Louis to begin the journey up the Missouri River, the Western engineer proved itself as not just visually impressive, but quite a capable boat as well. Of the original six ships on the Yellowstone Expedition, Two of them didn't even make it to the mouth of the Missouri. So as it turned out, only four boats gathered where the Missouri meets the Mississippi with the hopes of going where no steamboat had gone before. The smallest ship, called the Thomas Jefferson, went first. The money Missouri was not kind. For a very short stretch, things were okay, but that luck would not last. It struggled with snags. Its hull hit the bottom, tearing a hole, which slowly filled with water. In just a matter of days, at the mouth of the Osage River, not far at all from St. Louis, it sunk. They had no choice but to abandon it, and it earned the sad distinction of being the first steamboat to sink in the Missouri River. The other ships were no better. When the river would curve, they would get stuck, and the men would need to back up, reposition the boat, and try again. 
It was frustratingly slow. Walking might have been faster. Sometimes the water would be so shallow, they'd have to unload everything in the boat so the boat would rise in the water and make it to the next deep pocket. All that cargo would be carried back to the boat by the men. Enough was enough. The steamboats all headed back in failure, except for Stephen Long, the western engineer and his crew of artists. At a blazing three miles an hour, the dragon boat made it all the way to Council Bluffs in present-day Iowa. From there, Long was redirected to another exploring mission, leaving his crew. Eventually, he logged 26,000 miles of exploration from Minnesota to the Great Plains to the Rockies. Of his amazing dragon boat, little is remembered. A few quick sketches by the artist on board survived, but lack much detail. Perhaps the best information we have is this quote from a witness who saw the Western Explorer as it passed through St. Louis on its way to conquer the Missouri River. The boat of this vessel exhibits the form of a huge serpent, black and scaly, rising out of the water from under the boat, his head as high as the deck darted forward, his mouth open, vomiting smoke, and apparently carrying the boat on his back. From under the boat, at its stern, issues a stream of foaming water, dashing violently along. All the machinery is hid. Neither wind nor human hands are seen to help her. And, to the eye of ignorance, the illusion is complete. That a monster of the deep carries her on his back, smoking with fatigue and lashing the waves with violent exertion. Really sounds like a sight to see, huh? Okay, folks, here's an original song by the Tamerlane Trio. All right. Times are tough 
you listening this is a really fun project for us uh hope you enjoy it if you do find us on facebook find us on instagram uh hopefully you're listening on soundcloud or if we're up on itunes at this point um make sure you give us a review on itunes plan to get things going on patreon too so if you're listening to this at the point where i've got something on patreon um go give us some money because uh right now a costly endeavor but we really really enjoy it we hope you do too thank you for listening we'll see you next time our next episode uh i think it's about mail so stay tuned it's either about mail or birds i don't know it'll be a surprise Blue banana, blue banana on the starboard side.